Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. When thou goest forth to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, thou shalt not be afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, who brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So at this point, they don't have chariots, they have wagons. They probably don't have a lot of horses either, because they mainly just have the animals that they're going to eat. And it says, if you see an army coming against you with horses and chariots, and they are more soldiers than the soldiers that you have, not to be afraid. Two, and it shall be, when ye draw nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people. Jesus is our high priest, and it's him who we have our faith in. When the priest comes up to the front, to speak to the people, their faith is in God because the priest represents our eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. 3. And shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye draw nigh this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint, fear not, nor be alarmed, neither be affrighted at them. In the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament, fear is always equated with sin. It's actually a sin to be afraid if you're a child of God because that will intimidate you and make you kowtow to the world, and we're not supposed to do that. So we're not supposed to be afraid of anything that's temporal or worldly, no matter what, whether it's disease or a serial killer or a bomb going off. We're just not supposed to be afraid. Our faith is supposed to always be in God, because he can overcome anything, and he will glorify his name by overcoming any evil that presents in our lives. When we fear temporal and earthly things, then that means that we don't really fear God and we think that God is weak. And that's why fear is a sin, because it's a lack of faith that God is all-powerful, almighty, and that he will do anything to glorify his name. For, for the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And that's what God still does today for every one of his children. He fights their battles for them. It's another reason why we shouldn't be arrogant and think that we've made accomplishments. We haven't accomplished anything. God has fought the battles for us and caused us to prevail in our careers or wherever because of his name. 5. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house, and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, because it's going to show how God prefers to fight with the weakest, smallest army, and that is to glorify his name even more. They're going to have this law that allows anybody to leave the battle who wants to. Isn't God's law beautiful? In God's law, you can walk away from battle before the battle starts if you prefer not to fight for whatever reason. Now, in earthly law, they script you or they draft you. And if you run away from battle, you're considered a coward and you go to prison and you're shamed for the rest of your life. But in God's law, you don't have to fight if you don't feel comfortable doing that. First of all, they allow people to leave who have just bought a new property and want to enjoy their property. 6. And what man is there that hath planted a vineyard, and hath not used the fruit thereof? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man use the fruit thereof. If you've planted a brand new vineyard, and you've never seen the first crop, you get to go home, so you can enjoy it. 7. And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife, and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. If you're engaged or newly married, and you haven't consummated the relationship, then you get to go home and be with your wife. 
This is really good. God is saying he doesn't need you. If you're not gung-ho, ready to fight to the death, he doesn't need you. Because he can win against a whole army with one little boy with a rock and a sling. God needs nothing. And that's why when David went before Goliath, he wasn't afraid. He knew God was fighting Goliath, not David. And it's God who made that little rock go into Goliath's skull and kill him. David didn't do it, and he knew from the very start that he wasn't going to kill Goliath. That's why he had no fear. He knew God was going to kill Goliath. 8. And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart melt at his heart. If you really are fearful, God excuses you from battle. Even though fear is always equated with sin, you still don't have to fight. This is just so incredible. When you feel overwhelmed by your circumstances and you feel very weak that you can't do anything, believe with all your heart that God is doing it for you and thank him for it because he is doing it for you. 9. And it shall be when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people that captains of hosts shall be appointed at the head of the people. After all the men have left who want to leave, they're not considered deserters. Not in God's law. They're obeying the law by going home because they choose to go home. They can go home. God doesn't need them. It's incredible how kind God's law is. I just laugh in the face of any atheist who say that God was hateful, which they love to say all the time. Their only argument is that God sent the Israelites to battle. When you read all the books that we've been reading and all the law, that argument is absolutely ludicrous. 10. When thou drawest nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. 11. And it shall be, if it make thee answer of peace, and open unto thee, and open unto thee, then it shall be, that all the people that are found therein shall become tributary unto thee, and shall serve thee. What he's saying is, when you take over a land, like you've won the battle, you've left the other nation's dead warriors on the battlefield, and now you've gone to the cities to take them over. Because it's just citizens in the cities. It isn't warriors. You'll offer them peace. And if they answer you in peace, saying, yes, we want to make an alliance with you, then they become your servants. 12. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. Besieging is when you make war against a city, so you circle it so that nobody can leave, and then you will start fighting. They'll throw over rocks and cement and molten metal and whatever they have to throw at you, including arrows. And then you will try to break down their defenses and get in there and take over, which will mean that you're going to end up killing people. You're trying to break into the city while they're trying to keep you out. Besieging can also include starvation. If it's too hard to break their gate, then by blocking all exits and entrances, after a few months, they'll be so hungry that they'll give up because they can't get any supplies in. God is saying, if they're willing to make peace with you, they become your servants and they live. But if they want to fight, it's going to be very painful for them. 13. And when the Lord thy God delivereth it into thy hand, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. Now it says when the Lord delivers, because he's going to. Because God has already given them the land. And the reason they have to kill every male at that point is because all the males are still going to keep fighting to the death anyway. They've already determined they don't want their city taken. 
14. But the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, shalt thou take for a prey unto thyself, and thou shalt eat the spoil of thine enemies, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. Now that doesn't mean to eat the people. It means they get to eat the cattle, they get to keep the riches, the women get assimilated in through marriage, and so do the babies. 15. Thus shalt thou do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations. The cities of Canaan, they have to completely devote to God. They have to kill all of the pagans. But if they fight outside of their nation, then they don't devote those cities. They only kill the men if the men are fighting them. But if the men don't fight, then those cities just become their servants and assimilated into Israel. But that's only if they have to fight an opposing nation. They won't necessarily have to fight every nation around them. 16. How be it of the cities of these peoples that the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. That's the cities of Canaan. Those cities will be devoted, which means everything goes to God. He consumes it all. All the people die. Because they've already taught their children and their wives occult witchcraft and pagan worship, and their descendants will continue doing it, and then they'll teach it to the Israelites. 17. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. In time, Israel let some of them live, which was a sin, and this continued to cause problems in Israel. Over and over, off and on, the Israelites would go back to idol worship, and it's because they let some of these people live, and then these tribes taught them idol worship in a lot of the future generations. Because they didn't totally eradicate sin in the land, it still affected them. And that's why you and I have to totally eradicate sin in our lives, otherwise it will continue to affect us. That's why some Christians, they've been a Christian for 20 years, and they still can't give up fornication or whatever it is that they're doing. They just won't battle it and get it out of their life. And so it's going to handicap them spiritually for as long as they hang on to it. It will even prevent them from salvation. 18. That they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. And so ye sin against the Lord your God. He's just saying they will teach you and you will learn from them. And this is human nature. Whoever we hang out with, we become more like them. And that's why we got to be so careful who we align ourselves with. 19. When thou shalt besiege a city a long time, in making war against it to take it, thou shalt not destroy the trees thereof by wielding an axe against them, for thou mayest eat of them, but thou shalt not cut them down. For is the tree of the field man, that it should be besieged of thee? What a lot of people would do in the olden days when they were besieging a city is they would rape the land. They would use all the trees as battle axes or fire for their camps or whatever. And by the time the city has fallen, then the land is raped. God is saying, don't destroy the land while you're besieging the city. To besiege a city could take three months, five months, six months. It could take a long time. He's saying, be careful to conserve the environment so that when the city falls, you aren't left with a barren land. 20. Only the trees of which thou knowest that they are not trees for food, them thou mayest destroy and cut down, that thou mayest build bulwarks against the city that maketh war with thee until it fall. They can make battle axes or bulwarks, but they have to do it with the trees that don't have fruit, like pine trees, but they can't do it with a tree that has nuts or fruit growing from it. 
And that concludes Deuteronomy chapter 20.